Welcome to Adversarial Learning. Everybody, Joel here. Uh, we have a cool episode today. We're going to be talking about Urbit with our guests Curtis Yarvin and Galen Wolf Bali. Uh, and so, guys, if you want to introduce yourself and just tell us what you're about. Hey, I'm Galen. Um, I am the CEO of Talon, which is the company that is uh, working to develop Urbit. And I kind of have a weird background, which is probably worth mentioning. Um, I actually have an architecture degree, and so I have sort of a design background. So I'm the person who like thinks about how this thing gets used and how people might actually interact with it. Um, I do a fair bit of technical work myself, but I'm um, sort of like a, a hybrid personality. I'm Curtis. Uh, you know, I was the original uh, inventor of this uh, this monstrous thing, and uh, I have a uh, kind of traditional uh, CS background. I'm really an operating systems guy, so uh, you know, Galen and I uh, complement each other uh, quite uh, quite nicely in a way that the sort of the the founding uh, you know idea of Urbit was basically I was in in a former life I was a CS grad student, and I didn't really find a grad school much to my uh, appeal, and so um, kind of in the early 2000s I was. Uh, Essentially, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the bubble had just crashed, you know, I'm like, what do I do? And I'm like, oh, I'll do a, um, you know, uh, an unsupervised PhD thesis, uh, you know, more or less. And um, that, that sort of rolled into the question of, you know, answering the question of uh, how should we actually compute and program? Because we just seem to be doing everything on these kind of platforms that we inherited from the 70s. And uh, they, were the, they were really well done in the 70s. But, you know, no one's really gone back and answered some of these basic questions. And uh, I found out that there were uh, a number of basic questions to answer. And uh, so that's, and that was, that's that where was Urbit like came 10 from. years ago. So uh, yeah. <laughs> it was like 15 years ago. I mean, so Urbit is, I would say, uh, you know, I'm not super interested in academic publishing, but it's like maybe uh, four or five PhD theses in there. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's a little crazy, but, uh, uh, but, but we try to keep it focused on actual human beings. So uh. why don't you tell us what Urbit is for our listeners who may or may not know? Right. So the idea is to build a personal server. So if you look at in, you know, really sort of simple, boring terms, like the way that we use the internet today, we rely on a bunch of apps and services that are provided by other people. And some of these things you pay for, but in almost every case, they're sort of piecemeal, right? Like you use one thing to do messaging, or you use like six things to do messaging, you put your data in one place, you do your social networking in one place. Um, but for those of us, and I would imagine that a good chunk of your listeners um, are people who remember the internet in the early days, right? You basically, you ran your own general purpose machine on a network where you connected to other general purpose machines. Um, and we basically think there's an enormous amount of value um, in letting the individual control something that is general purpose and open-ended where it's sort of like a creative tool. It's not like a very narrowly useful thing that's controlled by someone else where you sort of, you have no privacy, you have no control over the interface, you have no 
um, ability to really trust that your data is going to live forever or so on and so forth. Um, Can I just pick that up super fast? So if you look at basically what technically has to be done to make that that kind of vision a reality, essentially, um, uh, I mean, anyone can get their own server now. You can get AWS as a free tier. You can have your own, you know, Unix box basically for a year. You pay nothing for it. Uh, you know, you could recommend this to your mother at any point. Uh, I'm sure your mother is totally cool with AppGet install and, you know, all that stuff. And um, the thing is basically, in a way, um, it's sort of very similar, like, it's sort of funny the the sort of the kind of obvious skepticism that you encounter with this kind of very sort of simple basic idea that people should control their own computing resources and it's sort of very similar to the skepticism that someone might have encountered in like 1976 when they're like hey i believe people will have their own computers at home and in like 1976 a computer is this like giant thing in like a room in the pentagon somewhere where they use it to calculate body counts for the vietnam war right and so i'm like people are like why why would I need a computer? I don't have any body counts to, you know, oh, calculate, you know. <laughs> and, um, and and the thing is that basically that you te- know of, yeah. Yeah, technology just sort of feeds into um, you know, essentially with the system software we have now, a computer in the sky is an industrial device. And it makes as much sense for you to have your own AWS boxes, to have your own like steel mill in your kitchen for making forks. You know, it's like, I might want to make a fork, you know, but the thing is that that PCs did happen. And the ways PCs happened wasn't that somebody ported VMS to the 68,000 and basically produced a you know PC that was a tiny fax. What happened is they, they started from scratch. And they had to start from scratch because they had these little chips that were um, that you know couldn't even run VMS. But um, you know what they discovered was that when they started from scratch and created something simple, I mean, you know, MS-DOS, you know, it's like 10,000 lines of code, 5,000 lines of code. I don't know what it was. But um, you know, what they discovered is that basically the sheer sort of simplicity of the machine made this thing usable by ordinary people. Mm -hmm. And so when you sort of take a look back and you say, okay, how do you turn, you know, here I have an AWS box, how do I turn that into something that ordinary people can use? The answer is basically, I have to make it much simpler. And specifically, if you look at sort of the whole computing stack that we have, and you're like, you're trying to get computing back to human scale, you've got this sort of Linux, which is this monster that's, you know, um, you know, I don't know if you count Unix as part of its history, but, you know, it's, it's 40, 50 years old. Sure. Um, and then, um, you know, the idea, you just can't take a complicated system and make it simple. Um, and then you have sort of a second problem, which is, the, um, you know, the Internet. And the Internet is, of course, a war zone. Um, and so the idea that, you know, my mother is going to have her own, um, you know, um, um, you know, server on the in, on the actual public internet is like saying, you know, my mother's going to go to Afghanistan and like, you know, deal with the Taliban all by herself or something. I mean, it's just like it's it's sort of it's preposterous in an order of magnitude kind of level. And so what that tells you is basically you've got to replace this whole system. You've got to answer the question of, you know, how should we do this in a way that doesn't make me think of, oh, more Unix than the internet? And the answer sort of comes naturally, which is that if you're going to build a simple system, you've got to basically build just a new layer on top of this old platform. And that new layer has got to do both things. It's got to both compute and communicate. So you've got to solve basically the whole problem. So uh, let me kind of push back on one thing you said, uh, which is that, you know, the personal computer revolution, um, people were skeptical of it and they said, who needs a computer in every house? But that transition was really going from 
no computer to some computer. You know, the average person mm -hmm. didn't have this, you know, mini computer or mainframe or whatever. Um, whereas here, you know, Facebook is already out there and a lot of people are happy with it. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so when you travel in tech circles, you can find people complaining about their privacy policy or their ads or, or whatever. But, you know, the average, you know, old person or non-tech person is probably pretty cool with Facebook. So what's the what's the value prop to them to, you know, switch away and try something new? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. That's that's the critical question. Um, so the way that I came to this project, I, I feel like the I mean, I can. My best answer is basically the reason that I'm I'm even working on this thing, right? So, and and I think this is true, or I find that this is true for a lot of people. I think um, who have spent a lot of time working with the existing stack, right? So, um, I'm someone who you know has a lot of uh, photos and text, um, and you know accumulates a lot of biometric data, so on and so forth, and I can program, right? And for me, um, the compromises that I would have to make to just use all the existing services that are available to me start to really stack up. It's like, you know, I'm not really loving uh, the way that things like uh, the way that Instagram looks, for example, or I'm not really loving the way that uh, I have to share things like the way that Facebook is set up for sharing. And I'm like, look, I can program like, why can't I just build an alternative? And I don't really want to leave all of my, you know, all of my social network behind. I don't want to. Um, and then but also I don't want to have to do everything myself. So if if you kind of go the direction of I'm going to build this stuff myself, I'm going to, you know, make sure that my Mongo connection is alive forever. I'm going to make sure that my server is always on. It's just an enormous amount of administrative work. Um, and so I think as being someone who basically like wants to explore what might be possible outside of the realm of what our existing web services like make available to us, I was just totally let down. It's like there's no platform. There's no alternative. You're completely stuck. So I think in the same way that like the early PCs were only interesting to sort of like hackers and, and creative people, right? Like the what was fun about an Apple One was that it let you do something that you couldn't otherwise really do in your basement really quickly, right? It was just fun to use. So the, the appeal of Urban is definitely in like, look, this is the whole stack in one system. And you don't have to, you no longer have to worry about the kind of administrative cost of running all the pieces of the stack yourself. So, so, so you've got in a way kind of two, two answers. You've got, you know, the thing is we focus in a way, you know, since we're, we're, we're a, you know, a young project, uh, despite being in some ways an old project, but we're a young project. And so we focus basically, we obviously have to focus on who are your early adopters, who are the people that basically want to play around with something cool and kind of want that power and want that whatever. And that's sort of to have the sort of the the path all the way to um you know we're going to build something that yeah you know in is going to replace the facebooks of the world is it going to replace the facebooks of the world this year next year certainly not and so, so the thing the thing so is you have to answer also sort of the long term question of basically what the um the kind of change in the user experience from um like the world of today to the world yeah. of tomorrow but is that is that what you're getting at or sorry what what were you going to were you going to interject? I was going to just ask, yeah, just uh, so so for, sort of like a um, real world example. So I, I tried, I installed, I installed uh, Urbit on both a Mac and on a on an Ubuntu, and it was really simple to get started. I think the the hardest part was trying to figure out the syntax for joining a chat room or something like that. Mm -hmm. So at this point, it looks like it's something that has it can communicate over HTTP. You can you can make uh, probably open socket connections. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of uh, wiring that you can you can use. 
Um, at the at this point, if I were if I'm just a just a layperson, I'm I'm trying this out. What what's available to me? Can you tell her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way to think about this thing is totally like a it's like a little wooden box with a lot of wires hanging out of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's definitely and, not for lay people at the moment. Um, <laughs> but it's and, certainly. And, I mean, it's for yeah. like you're sure if you're if you're somewhat tech if you're somewhat savvy if you're a programmer of any kind that you can handle this. So mm-hmm. yeah, what what Urbit does today in its very simple form is basically like um, yeah you can you can join it like there's a there's sort of like a main meta discussion channel which is where you can go to get help and talk to people who are excited about urban sort of figure out things to work on and figure out what to like how to contribute if you're interested in in contributing you can easily publish stuff to the web so it's really like urbit.org and all of our documentation is actually hosted from an urbit Mm. Um, and that like publishing that simple publishing system is also running on the node that you posted from an urbit behind an nginx cache but uh yeah yeah it's not is that the fora.irbit.org yes yeah, so, right. So there's also that little uh, tiny bit of forum software, which I think is about 50 lines of code, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, which is <laughs> seriously simplistic. Yeah. Um, so basically, you can chat and publish stuff to the web. And we have some really simple um, connectors for like HTTP API. So you can like uh, get your own Twitter data and play with it. Sure. Um, but let me let me go back to like in a way, I feel like we didn't completely answer your your question about the user experience because mm-hmm. there's sort of another aspect of it. You know, there's there's aspect of what is Urbit right now? What is this real? I mean, this is not vaporware. This is a real working system, obviously. Um, but there's also a question of like, where is this going? Where do you see this wanting to be? And we used to have a lot of trouble um, explaining this point until um, actually of all, all places, the New York Times did something uh, really useful for us. Uh, do you know this? <laughs> we, is... we came to this before this video, but yes. it's true that. Uh... Um, uh, yeah. We, 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 uh, do, you know, um, do you know the Chinese service, so WeChat? Yeah. Uh, have you used it? Have you, oh, I mean, no. you know of it. Um, the New York Times did this great video explaining uh, WeChat, which I, I just think everyone should watch. It's really, really well done. Uh, the thing about WeChat is that basically WeChat is has essentially solved in a sort of very Chinese way, which is to say half of it is brilliant and half of it is made of duct tape and pieces of string, has basically <laughs> solved this problem of, um, you know. Oh, wait, to be specific, like if you Google just like New York Times WeChat, there's like a four minute video that if you just replace WeChat with Urbit, the idea, seriously, like that's kind of, the idea is basically like, yeah, just get all of your stuff to work in a single interface. So, so, so who WeChat, has more duct, duct tape, you or, or WeChat? <laughs> Definitely. Well, the, the thing is basically WeChat is, WeChat is essentially a personal server at a certain level, but it's not like a personal server in that it's your, um, is that an actual general purpose computer. Although so WeChat is, is, is it another- is another analog that you know that well, which I think is 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 pretty funny. That Git is a distributed version control system that now has a single point of failure in GitHub. Is that is that right. sort of the idea of taking Git back and being able to serve your own repos? There's definitely yes. So so that so, well, the WeChat line of thinking. Sorry to yeah. be just yeah. To, let, let's just the WeChat line of thinking line is of basically thinking. like yeah. what WeChat does, which is so cool, is it just it lets you like. Um, I can send you a chat message and then send you a payment and then you can share some files with me and then I can make an appointment for us to do something. And it sort of, it abstracts away all of your, all of your individual services. What WeChat has done at a technical level is basically to say, look, you know, right now in the West, you have this system where you've got 17 different accounts and basically each of these accounts has its own um, UI. And so um, it's sort of delivering services in basically this, um, 
you know, the web delivers services in this really odd way, which is basically to say, okay, I have, you know, a data service, you know, let, let's say I'm providing banking services. That's fundamentally a data service. The way I'm going to provide this data service is I'm going to write a UI in HTML and JavaScript and download that onto your computer via your web browser. And then that UI is going to talk through a proprietary closed protocol to my server. Uh, and if you think about that, that's basically a little weird because the result is that you have, let's say you have, you know, 200 banks in the U.S. They all have a, a bunch of, you know, JavaScript jockeys writing a banking UI. And the thing is, they're all providing the same service. I mean, they're all, you know, almost at a certain level branches of the Fed almost. Right. And so all banks do the same things, but you have to write 200 different UIs. Then if you basically change your bank, you're like, oh, I have to go learn this new UI, this new UI. Well, we discovered back in the 80s, we discovered it's kind of something wonderful, which is, um, look and feel standardization. Um, and the web has just totally blown that up. So in the WeChat world, basically, you want to bank over WeChat. You're using one UI, which is the WeChat banking UI, and then you just change the backend provider. You, you know, let's say in, in China, you know, you, you go to a restaurant and you'll order food through your, your WeChat, right? Yeah. Uh, how, does it, how does that work, like at a restaurant? Um, you know, well, if you wanted to do that, the sort of Western web way, you're like, oh, your restaurant has to hire some JavaScript jockeys and build a they, UI like, build and ordering a system. App or something. Yeah, you get, you build get a full-blown app or something. And the thing is basically, like, you actually, the natural way for you to deliver these services is to have this one place, which is your digital home. And then you talk to your digital home through UI and your digital home talks to all these basically data services through APIs. And I can see that China has see this there. being a selling point just for chat services. And then when you, yeah. when you add everything else, in, like I, I, I like the proliferation of, of ways to get in touch with me is still too high in my view. So, yes. right. Yeah. And so, I think for pe for technical people, like it's funny because when I when you make that pitch to someone who uh, is basically totally non technical, they're like, I don't know, I kind of like the separation between like uh, like Slack and iMessage, sure. and I'm just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I hate that. Like, please yeah. just make it one thing. Yeah, like all the context switches. Stop the context. Switches. It's crazy, but also like make it one thing that I could actually program, and like that is what I want. Like, all please. Right, cool. Yeah, I mean the flip side of the, that is that you know. I have a Twitter brand and I have a LinkedIn brand and I have a Facebook brand and they're all subtly different. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And the different <laughs> right. UIs help me keep them straight a little bit. Yeah. 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 I, I don't, I think there, I don't, so actually, yeah, I don't, I actually don't disagree. Like I, I think there is value in the kind of um, conceptual separation that these things provide, but I'm not, I'm not clear on, or, or I don't think it's clear that there's a real value from a, in a, I do think the cost basically outweighs the value. Like it's possible to keep these things separate, but have them, but be able to actually control well, them and, technically. And, and it's also a fact that, I mean, these, you know, I, I like to call them sometimes uh, pseudo networks because, you know, a, a, a social network in the sense of Facebook isn't really a network in the sense of like packets going around. It's actually like a giant mainframe. It's like, you know, mailbox to mailbox, you know, email on an old, uh, you know, Unix mainframe, right? Um, that's what you're doing when you use Facebook. But these sites aren't going away. I mean, they're not, you know, it takes, you know, I mean, there's a lot of momentum there. There's sort of a lot of power. It takes basically a lot of time for us to basically stop using these things from your network. So sort of, you know, as your as your way of communicating. So sort of a basic idea of, of Urbit that, um, of course, will take a, you know, a lot of work to, to get to is that really you want to be able to drive your Facebook and your Twitter and all these things from your Urbit. Um, and that sort of gets into you an interesting have proofs problem. Of concept of, do you have proofs of concept of, of those yet? 
Yeah, yeah, a little we, bit. You yeah. can tweet from her bit. I mean, um, the interesting, the, the sort of the interesting situation where you're basically um, using APIs from a general purpose computer to basically drive those APIs instead of using what the service wants you to use, which is their UIs, is um, is interesting. Of course, you know, all these services basically make money by um, throwing ads into their UI. And so to the extent that you can control them via APIs, you're basically doing something that the service doesn't really want you to do. Um, one of the interesting kind of dynamics about basically saying, hey, I'm going to use Facebook or Twitter or whatever through an API or an extremist through actually scraping um, is that um, you're in a situation where this is an interesting feature because what we're always looking for with a, a young product is basically a problem that our product that we can solve doing things our way that you can't solve it doing things in the conventional way, right? Um, and the conventional way of basically saying, oh, I'm going to um, use Facebook through the API or whatever is to um, have a third-party central server that's just like Facebook. Um, so there was this case, uh, this legal case, Facebook versus Power Ventures, where basically um, this uh, company was providing a third-party site that basically let people use Facebook through its API. Um, no, no, it was like a com it was a combined social feed. It was right? a combined so social feed, like because you know the thing is that that. Um, you know, you can't like the terms of service on these APIs say, hey, I can't build a combined social feed that shows me both Twitter and Facebook at one time. Oh, oh. Um, and the thing is that that the, the way to, so the way to think about it is basically like your orbit is holding your own API keys. Right. So in a way, it's sort of like a browser for the server side. It's doing your bidding on the server side, meaning it's going making network requests, be they API requests or just scraping. And so you're kind of it's pretty hard for a service provider to basically shut down individuals connecting directly, right? Because that's what your browser does. Mm -hmm. But Urbit has a really easy way of getting around those restrictions because, I mean, these companies would, I mean, they could shut their APIs off, right? Or, or But then, of course, you can just make HTTP requests and, and scrape yeah, I mean, the Sure. Just, I mean, the, the point is that basically... Right. The point is that basically when, when people have their own general purpose computers, doing that isn't a single point of failure anymore. And the idea of Facebook suing, you know, a million users or something isn't, you know, really realistic. Or the idea of Facebook suing us because we made a general purpose computer is also not really realistic. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it seems less likely to me that Facebook would sue those users and more likely that they would try and take, you know, technological steps to prevent sure. people from accessing it that way. Sure. And at that, at that point, you turn into like a game of whack-a-mole. And that sort of looks really ugly for Facebook. And all those measures can basically be, you know, it's like the, the important point. I mean, how, di how different is it from what Facebook has to do to prevent, say, bots from scraping its site? Um, so the bots are very much, you know, generally single points of failure. Um, and so it's like you can say, well, um, you know, first of all, bots are not performing sort of individual style patterns of access. So, um, you know, basically, like if you have a system like bots have, you know, they're going to have high request loads. They're going to have, you know, basically like, yeah, they're, they're going to be doing um, they're going to be doing kind of bot like things in a way. And um, I feel like I always feel a little bit like this idea made the. You can dive into this idea maze, but it's like, we the, we, we don't know, man. We don't yeah, know exactly what's going to happen. We don't know. But the, the, thing but is the, the it, important point is basically like, if you take the WeChat example and you're like, hey, having a single UI to all your services would be really nice. It's like, well, WeChat did this by basically just building the entire ecosystem. And we're like, yeah, you have a LinkedIn, you have a Twitter, you have all this stuff. And what a general purpose computer on the server side can do is actually just 
is at least we think take control of those things take control of your existing things rather than trying to do this as a complete as like solely a paradigm shift right, right. So that you guys are sense? building a yeah you're building a layer that's that's general purpose that is cross-platform i assume i know it, it builds for unix like systems sure. for windows right um, is it, and I would imagine that you would have, uh, you could run on mobiles too. So you could have this sort of interface that is deployable everywhere and that simplifies people's lives in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, probably, probably on the mobile for the foreseeable future, you'll be talking, you'll be running like a, you know, a browser client or a react native client that will be talking to your server in the cloud. But, um, you know, one of the things we do is we basically port the kind of Urbit's internal messaging interface is just is sort of exposed from JavaScript essentially. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we yeah. don't, I don't know how well we run it on windows actually, but yeah, uh, the idea I, is basically to tried to build Urbit on Windows. I don't know. But, you know, the important thing about basically Urbit kind of technically, in a sense, is that Urbit kind of made the same decision as the browser in, yeah. in saying, we're going to isolate this higher level from the operating system under it. So there's no way somebody, of calling yeah, out the OS. I saw somebody in the chat room talking about building it for Linux for Windows, I think. Yeah, um, was, that was yesterday, right? Yep, yep. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and so as far as security, how, how isolated is this from the host system? Um, so, you know, that depends on how you, how you mean, you know, isolated, but, um, so I'm the, a, I don't know much about security, but I, I know enough to say isolated and host. Yes. Um, um, so, okay. So you can't make, um, you can't make any kind of, you know, first of all, Urbit is a purely functional, um, safe language. So you can't make any kind of system calls from it. Um, it's essentially, oh. it's an event processing framework, not unlike Node in some ways, although Node does have ways of making system calls because JavaScript is, is not pure. But the thing is that basically in order to break out of Urbit, you would have to, um, uh, you'd have to break through the type system. You'd have to break through the sort of implement the you know the functional implementation. Um, you basically it's like it's. I mean, I, I'm not going to say it's it's utterly impossible, but you'd have yeah. to convince this thing to do some very strange things. Okay, cool. Um, I mean, at this stage, it's yeah. probably totally possible, but yeah. theoretically, <laughs> theoretically, I mean, it's, it's fun to set up some red teaming and and see. Yeah, what, yeah. Break, right? Anyone who wants to do that, I would love yeah. to hear from. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> okay, cool. Yes, yes. totally. So, so, am I correct to understand that, like in this vision, your personal Urbit server is the source of truth for most of your data? I think the idea yeah. is in the in the long run, yes. And I think in a way what we're describing is sort of like at first it's just a mirror and you kind of over time hopefully move to the move to a world in which it is the single source of truth. Right. It becomes, you know, at first it's it's a derived state and then it becomes gradually becomes the master state. Um, and, and, and so before you use kind of banking as an example, do I really want to be the source of truth for my banking data? I mean, I can see the upside in that it doesn't lock me into my bank, but I can also see the downside in that all it takes is kind of one bad actor, you know, banking app that I install by accident and it, it sees my entire financial history, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, that's that's <laughs> we're not. Uh, I mean, I would just say like, uh, give us many years. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did. I mean, the 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 um um. First of all, you're talking about in a way. You know, people think about computers and they kind of assume this. Um, you know, sort of Unix model. Um, um, in a way, and um, I, I will say that I would hesitate to describe this as a, a highly secure system at the moment. But the thing is that um. <laughs> It's like one of the things that browsers solve this really well, right, in a way. You don't worry. Uh, 
you know, maybe you have to worry a little more than you should, but you don't normally worry that you go to a, like a bad web page and it's going to steal your financial data, which is also on your PC. And yet, um, you know, here's code running on your PC, which is in the browser. Here's code running on your PC, which is, you know, Quicken or whatever. Um, and, you know, people have sort of become comfortable with the reality that there's an adequate level of separation there. And then, I mean, these browsers are, of course, ginormously complicated, you know, monsters. And so sometimes there's a, you know, a little bit of hole in those those layers, but it requires like, you know, 11 breaks in a row, basically, to break out of them, yeah. to get from like JavaScript to your file system. I mean, it's, it's not like mal malware is definitely a thing. Malware I, I, is definitely a thing, but not so much not so much in the browser. It all, you know, tends to involve plugins and things. And so yeah. the thing is that in a way, it's basically like... Um, I think in email, when, it's mostly in attachments too. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the thing is that, 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 you know, one of the reasons I don't tend to sort of think or worry super hard about questions like this is just the fact that you're doing functional programming. And basically, you know, like when I have, you know, uh, um, um, an app, there's basically, there isn't that the, the data from another app is not even in its, like, uh, it can't reference that data. It's like, and so breaking through, like, you know, like there are no side effects. It's functional. Like if you don't have access to data, you don't have access to data. And so sort of breaking out of that involves breaking this pretty simple system uh, at a very, very deep level. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, the thing is that... Another, like, another way to think about this actually, is to sort of totally different way to think about this, is basically like, you already see a need for it. So, and, and I think you see a need for it with cryptocurrencies. So, I mean, you know, it's sort of in, in similar to your example with Git, with GitHub, um, you know, most of the world's, well, I wonder if it's actually most, but quite a lot of the world's Bitcoins, right, live with Coinbase. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, people want the ability, you know, whether you like it or not, to use a digital currency. Um, and it remains very difficult to do that independently. Um, so it sort of like feels, especially in with um, with Bitcoin, like a problem that, that, that would be really nice to solve, right? It would be really great if you could basically host your own Bitcoin wallet or your own Ethereum wallet. Well, wasn't um, there a big deal with the DAO or Ethereum losing tons of money because there was a, a contract that was written so that that was possible? So. Yeah, sort yeah, of. Yeah, sort yeah. of a diff that's that's <laughs> sort of sort of a different. I mean, question, that, that was with the contract itself, yeah, right? Yeah, not, yeah. Not yeah. I think in wallet, that that was uh, yes, that was okay. the. Uh, so it wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't because it was a third uh, central location. So. I think that was like a design flaw, right? Yeah, right. it was yeah. because basically, you know, Ethereum is a, is a great idea, but uh, in implementation, it has. You know, tough. some trash fire aspects to it <laughs> um, but um, um, you know that's a that's a very different different conversation uh, yeah I mean you know essentially the um, the answer to that is that it, it basically it, yeah it takes a sort of long time to basically build up you know the trust that you need to basically say yeah this is my this is my digital home and I'm gonna feel safe when I'm in my digital home and um, I'm gonna feel sure that no one is gonna get into my digital home and right now sort of that that kind of safety is in a way it's like when you look at the Facebooks of the world they exist because they serve like a really you know serious need and the <laughs> the rise of those systems basically... Are we talking about the same Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, the thing is that I guess I'm talking in in, um, in contrast to this, you know, utopia that we all believed in in the, you know, the 80s and oh, 90s okay. where yeah, everyone right. runs their own computer, right? And the thing right. is that, um, 
you know, that was tried with his existing technology and it basically failed. And it's sort of like, you know, when the Roman Empire is, is falling apart, these kind of new barbarian kingdoms, you know, arise because basically like the, the Roman Empire is collapsing. There's no, you know, safety anywhere. The roads are full of bandits. And then, you know, this barbarian comes to you and says, you know, serve me absolutely and I will protect you from the Huns. Yeah, and yeah, people are yeah. like, all right, you know, I'll take it. Yeah. And so they wind up in this, this position of like sort of complete servitude. Right. I'm tired of my logs filling up my hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I think it's okay. probably, the, the thing I think of is like, have you ever, um, have you ever run like fail to ban or like, have you ever had to like no. protect a server? I mean, it is so great. Like it's such, a, it's actually pretty simple to do, right? Just like get yourself an AWS box and just, just install fail to ban on it and just <laughs> oh. watch the traffic roll. And it's insane. It, what uh, does it do? Just listen on a bunch of ports or something? Uh, it basically just like watches for people um, trying to make like repetitive SSH logins, ah. for example, um, or just spurious HTTP traffic and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But it's incredible how, I mean, the other one is like, there's like that tweet the other day about the guy who's like, I set up my, um, you know, I bought this $30 webcam at Best Buy or something. I'm going to, this is like paraphrasing. Oh, Robert, what's his name? Yeah. Like, you think the same thing? And it gets owned in 90 seconds. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah. dude's Rob, um, it's yeah. a Rob, yeah, Rob, Rob or something, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, this this network is just a complete, you know, war zone in a way. And um, it's I sort think of... we just, we forget that fact because it's become so easy to use. Yeah. Like, there's this huge separation between, like, the internet as a network and, the and like, the web or the cloud or something, right? Like, as this collection of apps and services. Sure. And, and the thing is... That was, of... that was, the problem with that was, like, shipping default passwords. And that, that was, like, also, like baby nanny cams too like there, yeah, there's tons I mean, of wouldn't you say that the, it's all just because this like because the software layer is so there's such a huge dif- distance between basically whatever you know like base unix distro is running on that camera and all the software that the developer has to put together in order to ship a sort of stable and secure product there are just too many places they can go wrong right? and then there's the internet itself which is just hell i mean and the thing is if you look in a way like as, as a technology guy basically you sort of look at the um, kind of the mistakes that were made here that got us to this point where basically just, you know, if you have to have digital freedom, you can't afford it. Um, And, you know, the thing is, so you look at specifically, you know, the IP layer, you're like, why is there all this malicious traffic on the internet? And, you know, in my mind, there's a very sort of basic reason why people abuse the... um, the internet, which is, uh, you know, a, a short a story I like to run through, which is, uh, do you guys know how uh, internet uh, IP addresses are allocated? No, not really. Um, I, I know you, you get one when you plug it in. You get one when you <laughs> plug it in. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, at a low level, there's there's this, you know, wonderful little DHCP thing, which lets you get one when you plug it in. And at the high yeah. level, um, there's, um, you know, something called, uh, you know, used to be called IANA or ICANN or whatever. And um, okay. the idea of, you know, coming, getting back to really the 70s or at least the early 80s is that basically we have 4 billion IP addresses, which is a lot. And so, um, you know, it's very easy to basically give them to people who uh, to need them. Um, And, uh, you know, the definition of need, uh, you know, sort of early in this process was very, um, very loose. And so, you know, at some point there was some meeting somewhere and MIT raises their hands and they're like, well, we could really use a class A network. So a class A network is one two fifty six. It's a slash eight. It's one two fifty six of the Internet. Um, and MIT raises its hand and gets one. Harvard doesn't raise its hand, so it doesn't get one. You know, now this asset, if you sort of price this asset, it's worth like, you know, 
$200 million or something, right? Because you raised your hand. Um, and the thing is that basically over time, sort of gradually people are grudgingly acknowledging that these big blocks of IP address space are turning into property, but it's still very much a gray market. And the ideal of the internet was that this resource was going to be assigned according to need. So you're an ISP, you've got, you know, a hundred thousand customers. You're like, I need a hundred thousand, you know, IP addresses. So you basically fill out a form, you send it in, they rubber stamp the form, they give you your block. So, you know, when it comes to distributing resources according to need, like who's, Whose economics does this remind well, so you of? I would assume that IPv6 is a similar problem, just at a different scale. IP, yeah, IPv6 is, uh, let's not get into, uh, you know, we could have IPv6 flame wars for a while. But, you know, just from just from the perspective of, uh, of IPv4, which is still sort of very much a reality, you've got the situation where um, resources are allocated by basically who needs them, which is... Um, it's essentially, uh, you know, Marxist economics, right? Um, and they're like, this is a public resource, so let's have a big bureaucracy that figures out who, who needs these things. And as a result of that, basically, you have this situation where it's not really clear who owns an IP address. And if you basically have a block of IP addresses, um, you know, that IP address is not really yours. So... If you imagine kind of an alternate reality, which is, you know, not the, you know, administrative reality of the Internet today, let's say uh, you, you an IP address is property. So uh, you want to get a cell phone which has uh, Internet uh, access. You're like, here's my phone number. This is kind of my property. Here's my IP address. Um, you know, I actually own this. Maybe I paid 10 bucks for my IP, for my IP address. In that world, that's a world where when I do something like sending email, Right now, if I want to send email from my like home box, that's an exercise in futility because basically people are going to be like, oh, that's on a residential network, probably a botnet. I'm not going to accept his thing on port 25. Yeah. Um, and so email is kind of the last like holdover from the old decentralized internet and it's slowly becoming centralized. Um, in a world where you owned your own IP address, which is, you know, by the way, the same, you know, bit width as the kind of normal orbit you know, planet address that most people have, then you would say, okay, I, here's here, I'm, you know, 192.28, you know, 130.22. Um, here's my email. You send, you send some email. And if that email is spam, whoever gets a spam throws you on a blacklist. Uh, that happens super fast. And the result is that address that you paid 10 bucks for doesn't work anymore. So your spam better have made you 10 bucks. And so the thing is that basically when you have sort of clear, when you have treat address space as property that's owned, people become accountable in a way that they're basically not accountable for today. And that's basically how you, what you have to do to design a, a network that basically is resistant to abuse. Now you turn on your so webcam or whatever. This, so this sort of gives, um, if, if I'm reading it right, this, this gives sort of the same uh, um, authentication or validation that going through the hoops of signing your emails with PGP key would do not quite because the thing is pgp keys aren't scarce and so the thing is the fact that you sign you know if you're a spammer and you signed your email with pgp key um you know next your next spam will come out with a different pgp key and the important okay, so this is making a making a penalty a built-in penalty to abusing it's just basically saying like the equivalent of a username costs something um, because usernames are finite so if it's since it's a finite finite resource it has some cost sure um, i mean like an address on the internet today is like a rent car it's like nobody's well, we changing the oil in a we're, car. we're skipping a little yeah ahead here uh and i don't know so if is, we well, yeah, go, go ahead go ahead um, is the idea then that your planet is kind of 
your identity. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, and then how does that square with the idea that, you know, people are off buying and selling these things? What does it mean for me to sell my identity? Yeah, good point. Good, um, good, 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 good question. Well, um, the um, if you're uh, first of all, what we're mainly in buying and selling today is not um, planets, which are 32 bit addresses, but um, the uh, stars and galaxies, which are the 16 uh, bit and 8 bit. Yeah, let's, wait, let's, let's back up a, a little bit because we're we're skipping over the basic the 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 we should like establish how this actually sure. the how this actually works so the idea is um you can think of it like there are four billion addresses so same size as ipv4 and we can get into why that is not a terrible idea although it may sound like like uh, not enough um but in any event there are four billion planets um each planet is issued by a star there and so there are like there are two to the 32nd planets there are two to the 16th star so each star issues two to the 16th planets each star is issued by a galaxy. There are 256 or two to the eighth of those. So yeah, so the idea is not only did your address cost something, but you need someone to, you need to get that address from a real human. Um, and you're sort of a, somewhat accountable to that real human. Um, stars and planets can both change parents. Um, so you're not trapped. So if you if your relationship with your parent somehow goes sour, uh, you can always move. So to be clear, like the network is peer to peer. Like if two planets want to talk to each other, that's like they send packets directly, but the star does their routing for them. So to have this sort of like system in place, um, you want there to be some degree of a market price for these things, right? I mean, like you, you, we don't, I mean, in, in general, this whole system is set up such that basically like you want to, you want to grow into a decentralized network, right? You want, at the end of the day, you want a decentralized network where real humans have actual routable addresses. Um, and so to get there, it's like, well, we can't be the sole arbiter. Like, we're not going to decide who gets all of this stuff. We're not trying to replace Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> right. You want to decentralize this problem, right? <laughs> so you want to basically say, yeah. look, we can let other people own blocks of this, and they will be the issuers and the kind of like the ones to effectively run network infrastructure and help set pricing. Um, to answer your question specifically, so there's a difference between I got a sort of like I got a ticket or I got the sort of like I got my initial key signed and I can now get on the network and I've been using this orbit for a while and I want to trade this name. The idea is that names effectively lose value over time. So the market price should be for initializing a name on the network. If you've had a name on this network for a while, I mean, you would guess that, I mean, this is very like, it's like a sort of long-term speculative, but you would guess that basically as it changes hands multiple times, it does decrease in value, right? I mean, it's more difficult to sort of assign reputation to something that has potentially been used by a bunch of different people. Um, this stuff is still... No, well, you, I mean, you could have some sort of stage in there where... It gets kind you of like a, cleaned. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is that the, the point at which you run out of 4 billion planets is... Um, is pretty far in the future. I don't think there's four billion uh, internet users yet. Uh, moreover, these are not. Uh, you know, a planet is something that's. It's a little more like having your own server. It's you know, okay, yes. Is it easier than running an AWS server? Does it upgrade itself automatically, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, yes, yes. But it's still basically a product for a responsible adult. Um, and so you know, the point at which you basically get to the point where people have to. Um, by used planets is uh, you know very far in the future, and the, the <laughs> yeah. social conventions think, <laughs> regarding that uh, you know we have would no have to we evolve. have no idea. Like the, I think it's basically like you're just trying to create a system where 
that is designed to both sort of evolve towards decentralization and evolve towards sort of greater accountability on, on like an open network. And so do you have a pricing structure now for, I saw something about um, how this stuff is funded. Yeah. So, right. So part of the idea is obviously that, um, or maybe perhaps not obviously, uh, that you can use this resource to fund development. This is obviously like a pretty ambitious project. Um, So a planet, like as as even discussed earlier, right, like is not super useful. It's kind of a cool toy, but it's not, it doesn't have a lot of value. So what we do is we sell those larger blocks. Um, And so, yeah, last summer we did the first public sale of stars um, and we quite genuinely had no idea really how that was going to go. So we just offered up a small allocation and said, Hey, there, these are, we'll let these go for a fixed price with a little bit of a discount. Um, you know, who wants in? Um, and we sold them out pretty quickly. It was really great. And we're able to kind of like fund the next phase of development or sort of like fund the next set of infrastructure projects we wanted to take on. So we've been working on that. Uh, sure. I mean, it's like, it, you know, imagine, you know, just go back sort of super simply to the creation of the Internet. Right. Um, it's like, how do you how did you fund the creation of the Internet? Well, you got, uh, you know, government grants, basically. Yeah. And, um, and 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 that could happen in an era when DARPA worked, frankly, a lot better than it works today. Um, and. Um, um, you know, the, the idea of, of actually issuing a, a grant proposal makes my, my toes, you know, curl up and, and want to fall off. Um, but the thing is, the, you know, the option of basically saying we're 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 creating this basically this new digital universe. And basically the way we're going to fund, you know, this you know, enormously ambitious and, uh, you know, expensive project is basically we're going to sell off property in the, in the new universe. So basically if MIT and the urban world wants to raise its hand and say, Hey, I want to slash eight, we'll be like, fine, MIT. But, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, we need some saw bucks along with that. Um, and, um, you know, does that, does that all make sense? Yeah. So you're, you're not relying on the bona fides of, uh, of a university and, and it's, it's it's claimed to need it as much as just saying, well, how's it going to cost you? That that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and it's like basically, look, you know, when you buy when you buy some herbit, you're buying you know a bunch of um, Florida you know swampland essentially, and um, <laughs> there's really. <laughs> but yeah, but there, will, there, will be, there will be hotels on that swampland. Um, yeah. You know, we're talking a lot about you know creating this new universe of things um, and about the economics of it at all, and you know. Curtis is well known for some of his political writings, or at least he's well known among certain circles. So, is is Urbit a political project at all? Urbit is Ur- Urbit is definitely not a political project, and in fact, I was um, working on Urbit well before I uh, wrote anything uh, controversial on the internet. Um, in in some <laughs> ways, um, um, you know, one of the not the, sure that I wonder whether that's like <laughs> is, is that a good thing or nothing. Uh, I feel like that's actually that's like that basically sums up the problem. Um, uh, I, the the way that we talk about it, I don't know whether you're getting this, but basically, like you should think about Urbit as a digital. The idea is to build a digital republic. Um, so, I mean, it's political in the sense that it is. I, the idea is for it to become a polity or or sort of like a, you know, so, something that's like that's basically publicly held. It's a piece of infrastructure. But I wouldn't say that there. Are, um, uh, sort of politics in the conventional sense that are deliberately, I think, baked into the system itself. Um, and so, so, so the thing that really inspires, you know, the kind of my, you know, coming of age experience that really inspired me with the kind of the possibility of what the internet could become was very much uh, Usenet. Uh, do you, are you guys so old that you remember Usenet? Or uh, uh, we uh, are, yes, yes. But I know it is, yeah. 
Yes, yes. You know, my, you know, if you go, if you go in the Usenet archive and, and search for my name, my like, you know, sixteen-year-old, <laughs> sen- like, my sixteen-year-old, don't do this. <laughs> yeah, my sixteen-year-old sense is all over Usenet. I haven't uh, even done this. I'm like, I'm like, to, I, I, no, I, yes. Uh, um, um, but uh, so, so maybe maybe Urban actually doesn't predate your uh, writing about politics. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's not. It's not political. It's just much. It's much worse than that. But um, um, the uh, but the thing about Usenet that was amazing is that Usenet really was a digital republic in the sense of, uh, you know, the Latin word res publica, which, um, you know, uh, is what our word republic comes from. And, um, you know, there were a couple of things that were amazing about Usenet. One, Usenet was, it was genuinely decentralized. It was like, uh, the easiest way to explain it to kids these days is Usenet is like decentralized Reddit, right? Um, and and it's, <laughs> I know, Reddit is horrible, right? I mean, even when I say Reddit, I'm just like appalled. Um, but um, I mean, it's um, like it's like Reddit if it, Reddit actually functions. It's like Reddit <laughs> if Reddit was actually governed in a sense by its user base, and I don't mean governed by its user base in terms of basically taking votes. I mean governed in sort of a sense that there's like political deliberation going on, and not political in the sense of Trump versus Clinton, but political in the sense of people governing a polity. So specifically, the way you that was governed, um, you know, in its its golden age was by something called the backbone cabal, um, which sounds awful. But, um, you know, nobody was even sure who was a (laughs) member of the backbone cabal. It was basically governed by the system administrators of the people running the system. Um, And this was like, you know, one of the things, you know, if you want to get, you know, political, one of my favorite um, kind of American political heroes is uh, our second president, uh, you know, John Adams. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the points that uh, Adams made is that basically um, what you need in order to have a republic is a body of virtue. You need to have basically a large enough sort of distribution of kind of virtuous people who want to make the system work. Um, and, you know, without basically, you know, this sort of capital of virtue, you just can't have a republic. And one of the things that basically sort of tears me up when I look at, um, you know, the digital world is that there's clearly a lot of decentralized virtue out there, as there was in the days of Usenet. And yeah. the problem is that basically decentralized decentralization hasn't worked because the mechanisms that basically people create sort of allow virtue to get overwhelmed by vice. So when you look at um, the well, specific, I, I, I have another example I, I could talk about too. Sure. Um, I just I just got my ham license, ham radio license, a few weeks ago, and and we've been playing around with it at home. Um, and it's very similar in concept to what you're talking about because there are individual contributors. Each one has his own, you know, aside from the, the government issued ticket, you have your own call sign and you can transmit mm-hmm. from whatever you're allowed to transmit on. And there are repeaters that are sort of collectors and they, they route these messages back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and- however, yeah, and there's also a sense of, you know, etiquette and, you know, the, the goal is to promote free wit, free, uh, right. The ham world is absolutely a republic. And, and yeah. it's basically, we had, we had all these interns that were ham radio operators. Yeah, yeah. I feel like maybe this is the right, um, this is a, this is a great metaphor. And, yeah. and the thing is basically, it's like, you know, okay, yes, there is an, an FCC, you know, that, that, that regulates this stuff, but you, you sort of get a sense that this world could regulate itself perfectly fine without a However, authority. Yeah. But this is the counterexample. So last mm. night, I, for, I heard my first ham radio troll. There was somebody. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> That's awesome. yeah, it was incredible. 
Because yeah, so I, I, had, I had the same sort of like uplifting feeling about the whole thing. And I thought, well, this is wonderful. It's self-regulating. This is amazing. And everybody's kind and you can have your kids on there usually. Um, but there was, there was an hour long chat session and somebody kept keying on the entire time saying the filthiest obscenities you could, you could imagine. Mm. And so, every, so everybody sort of got interrupted right after they let off the, the push to talk by this other, this voice mm-hmm. that was mocking and making fun of everybody's call signs. And so it went on for about half an hour. Wow. And, and I, you know, at a certain point I was like, okay, so everybody's ignoring it. And I emailed somebody who runs that repeater and I said, Hey, there's somebody doing this and are we just, do you just ignore it? And they said, yep, there's nothing we can do because yep. the guy's mobile, yeah. you know? And so there's no way to triangulate. And so there's, there is, and it's incredible. Like even something as simple as this, somebody wants to trash it. And, and, and the thing is, that's, that's a, that's a really important point because basically the thing that basically sort of provided the moat around Usenet was that Usenet was this sort of obscure, like the internet back in the, you know, the eighties and nineties was this obscure thing that Hardly anybody knew about to get an account on Usenet. You could only get one account. Your account came from your university or your employer. That's the if, most important thing. If the you thing if you, you just you would lose it. You like, would lose it if you abused it. You would lose it, right? And everybody everybody knew that. And there wasn't some central definition of abuse. There was basically like you knew the guy who yeah, would, you, who would you know, the guy who made this decision was actually close to you. This guy is sort of responsible to the rest of the network and took that responsibility seriously. And so it's not a you know, the thing is, there's order, there's like decency, but there's no central government. And that's just so neat. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's and the, the tragedy is also the thing is that I when we were talking to someone the other day who made this equivalency, and I, I often like sort of forget to, to even talk about it. But that's the way the real world works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. if you you know, if you're constantly playing loud music, right, your neighbors are, are going to get pissed and do something right. Like, if you're if you're if you're, if you're, if you're writing graffiti, like the sort of the city government deals, like, we have these different spheres of accountability. And that's very normal to us in our physical lives. But the internet today is just completely flat. Like there's it's, it's like, I'm accountable to Jack Dorsey or something, which is just like the state of affairs, <laughs> which I just yeah. totally reject, you know, and, are you verified? Sorry, <laughs> are you uh, verified? Uh, no, I'm not even on. Twitter, I have a but, uh, I have a Twitter that um, I think makes absolutely zero sense, and I don't think Curtis. Is um, but um, are you a, are you one of the weird sons? Uh, I'm not sons. one of the weird sons. Um, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with the you know with the Twitter ecosystem. But um, um, yeah, you know, the thing is that essentially Usenet fell apart when it's kind of natural. I mean, and Ham Radio has a similar kind of moat around it. Is that you know you have to be a certain kind of person to get into that, and you know, enforcing a world of only this certain kind of person is kind of delightful. But nothing really enforces it. There's no sort of phys- physical way of right. But the, but the, the sort of certain kind of troll. person rule is not an actually tenable rule. It's right? not okay. an actually tenable rule. And and so the thing There's is. That you can buy a radio and not get a ticket and just drive around uh, Seattle right. mocking everybody. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it's such an, a huge loophole. I was, I was, I was shocked. I, and, and the thing, that is pretty the, crazy, the thing that always amazed me, that. basically, about Usenet is I'm like, like it's so amazing that nobody abuses the service. Of course, you know, this is me thinking about it in 1990, and by like 1996, the service has essentially ceased to exist because people are abusing it. And the thing is okay. that basically, in a way, Usenet. The old internet was basically not designed to be resilient 
against this kind of attack and sort yeah. of things like having infinite numbers of identities. So when you're a spammer, you can just get a new email address, a new identity. Um, it was basically, it was just not designed to defend itself against the barbarians. And so kind of, you know, a, a, <laughs> like a point of, of and sort of explicit point behind the way Urban is designed is like, yes, we're going to build a digital world that can sustain itself in a world that has barbarians in it. If that's a political project, yes, that's my political project, you know? Um, cool. Yeah, but, that's uh, great. That's really good feedback. Yeah. yeah. Our data, or, sorry, our podcast is nominally about, you know, data science and machine learning and AI and things like that. Um, is there a pitch uh, around, here's what Urbit has to offer to that community, or here's why Urbit is interesting to that community, or even here's like a cool Urbit-related data project that someone could, you know, take on and it might land them on the front page of Hacker News or something. Sure. Um, um, well, let's let's do the easiest parts of that first. First of all, Urbit is a system where um, the state of your system is a pure function of the um, list of events it's received. So that's kind of cool. Um, it's not only a pure function of the list of events you've received; it's a pure function that uh, sits on a T-shirt. Uh, we really ought to sell these T-shirts. Um, oh yeah. And, can we can and, we get some T-shirts? Yeah, but we'll yes, send you some t-shirts. Absolutely. We have a sash. They're, they're designed by Galen. He's a designer. They look very good. And, the, you know, the function is quite readable. Uh, so it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of pretty cool to basically have, you know, a system where the whole life cycle of your computer is a pure function. That's pretty cool. Um, the other thing, in a way, from the data science perspective, um, the thing that basically, you know, I was just telling someone this the, the other night, that, you know, the kind of the... Technically, the original idea behind Urbit, you know, was this question, oh, I want to design a programming language. Okay, how do I design a programming language and get people to use it? That's really hard. How do I design a programming language and get people to pay me for writing a programming language? Well, that's impossible. Yeah. Like, everybody will agree that that's impossible. And so, um, basically, I'm like, well, maybe there's a way in which this isn't impossible. Because what I could do is I could write a functional language. And in my functional language... I can have a global immutable namespace. So a global namespace that basically works like Git in that, or like the Git ref log in that, you know, once you create a reference, it can't be changed, um, which is, of course, very different from like the way a URL is bound, right? Um, and I'm like, okay, number one, if I could do that, I could reference any data in the universe as if it was a constant. Okay, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and then also, okay, I have a namespace, this namespace needs to be allocated. Um, how do I allocate this namespace? Oh, I could basically say, here I have a functional language that can reference any data in the world as though it's a constant, and then I can sell you chunks of that namespace. Um, and that requires me to have something that's both the programming language and the network, uh, how does that work? That's a little weird. Um, I think, I mean, the inter the data, the thing that's interesting to data science is basically the immutability, right? Yes, so it's yes, like, yes. I mean, if it's, you're... it's actually, not only is it an immutable global name, so it's actually a typed immutable global namespace. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the thing that it brings to mind to me is if you had enough planets, um, couldn't you build a distributed computing system that, you know, could run in the background and do sort of like the SETI style compute? Yeah, yeah. So one one thing we didn't talk about at all, which is interesting there is that is moons. So each planet, so mm. each planet has can can issue 4 billion moons. So stars and planets can move parents. Yeah. So, but, it, uh, but moons can't move. So the idea is like planets are people and moons are devices. So or when, they're your, when, like, when you think about the, for, for your super technical audience, uh, you know, there's a simple way to think about addressing in, um, in Urbit, which is that um, 
okay, the simplest way to do a distributed address space is to say my my address is the hash of my um, uh, of my identity. Well, okay, that gives you a 128-bit address space. Um, pretty hard to remember a 128-bit number, even if you put it into syllables. But if you have that 128-bit hash-based address space, there's all this really super valuable real estate down at the bottom of it, because you're never going to get a 64-bit number from a 128-bit hash or a 32-bit number. And those are the numbers that turn into addresses that are really actually memorable by human beings if you map the if you turn the bytes into phonemes the way we do. Um, okay. So that makes sense. I hope. Um, uh, looks like we're almost wrapping up on our, our time here. Uh, any uh, any more questions you guys have? Uh, um, well, no. I mean, I I think this is a good starting point, basically. So it's been. Uh, I know. Yeah. That's <laughs> why I, I warned you at the beginning. It's like. Yeah, yeah. We're we're doing our best. To, I feel like part of the reason. So right. So the reason I reached out to you guys to kind of, to to chat is I'm like always kicking myself that we don't spend more time talking about Urbit. But the 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 side effect of that is that we are still compressing the, our ability to talk about Urbit into under an hour, which is uh, you know can still be improved. Yes. yes. So I, really I, I do have one, one last question, um, which is you know Andrew and I both spent some time you know perusing the docs and installing things, getting things working. Um, and the immediate impression you get when you do that is that you've chosen like a different unfamiliar name for basically every part of the system. <laughs> there is, there is, there's, there's some truth to that. And that basically comes from, um, that comes from re-engineering things. I mean, the, the example that I usually give is that basically in, you have, you know, a word in conventional CS, which is type, right? And in Urbit, there are, depending on how you count, maybe three or four things that all really want to use that word type. And the problem is if you use, um, you know, the word for one of them, you're basically sort of um, um, cheating the others in a way. And mm -hmm. so um, you basically, in a way, if you're going to, you know, like the, the, the benefits that you get, for, for example, like as just a quick example of that, okay, what is the type? Um, one of the things that you really want to be able to do on kind of a modern network is basically say, well, when I create a data type, I'm also creating a validator. So basically, someone can get send me some foreign crap, and I get crap over the network. I have no idea what this crap is. And hey, I have a type, so I should be able to use that to like validate the data that you know someone just sent me. Uh, you know, and in a networked world, that's a very basic kind of thing that you want to do. In a non-networked world, why would you ever want to do that? And so you have all these kind of type systems and languages that really date from the non-networked universe, and they don't solve problems like this. And so when you basically go and say, oh, I'm going to solve problems like this, you find yourself in this sort of very different conceptual space. I do think I overdid a little bit of that level of opacity and there's no denying that our docs can uh, you know stand you know severe improvement but uh yeah that's the thing that i would tell anyone is basically like if something is confusing it's either either other people find it confusing or we think it sucks and we would change it i i think this is like something that's just totally not obvious when you encounter a project of this kind of scale it's like it seems like everything was done intentionally but uh it, it's just like just come talk to us like someone will either explain why it is that way or they'll be like oh my god will you please change this yeah sure uh, yeah one, sorry, one thing on. i want to give you a chance to, to help, tell people how to contribute so you know we i joined the chat room asked how to contribute and it sounds like most discussion happens on github but are there other other uh channels yeah so chat is actually pretty good like the thing is because there's so much going on the, or like that, that urbit is such a can be such a big thing to take on like the first thing to do is really just like work through the introductory docs get familiar a little bit and then come and talk to us so it's like 
super, you know, hardcore systems people like might want to take a look at the interpreter and get involved there. Um, you know, people who may, you may just be like a web guy. You want to write some JavaScript? Great. We've got lots of JavaScript that you could work on. There's this um, amazing guy who um, basically knock is our, that's our t-shirt size function. Um, and it's kind of a functional assembly language in a way. And there's this guy, he's like, yeah, I'm a philosophy <laughs> grad student. I never learned to program, but, um, you know, I, I just love knock. And so he's writing these just amazing <laughs> things. It's like the, like Goldbach conjecture, like, you know, um, <laughs> so um, um, you know, counterexample tester in raw knock, you know, which is really very awesome. much like writing the same thing in assembly. And I'm just like, I like, yeah, I'm so like, you do know there's a high level language here, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sure, also, if you, awesome, you want right? to write uh, proofs in knock, we, Yes. love reading them. They're so crazy. <laughs> uh, awesome. But basically, first stop should be come chat with us. Like, there's always people there. There's a good, solid collection of contributors who are around who can, like, point you in the right direction. There is a forum which, like, if either no one is around or you have, like, kind of long-form questions, we'll answer you there. Um, I think that's the, yeah. The, yes. the, the, and it, all that just, is hosted on Urbit. Unfortunately, I love to get our, like, GitHub issues and GitHub discussions and basically make Urbit kind of the master source of truth for Urbit itself. But, you know, we haven't quite, uh, you know, uh, obsoleted GitHub yet. Uh, yep. <laughs> and, and so what if people don't necessarily want to contribute, but they just want to learn more? Where, where should they go look? Yeah, head to urban.org. If you're interested in just you know, like high-level stuff that's on the main website, and then the documentation site is, you know, you just click on docs mm -hmm. and go dive in. Sounds like our time is up. Yeah, we're... <laughs> yep. Do you guys have any questions for us? And then we uh, can sign off. No, no, no. Uh, thanks I actually for... Actually, I, awesome. I, I have questions for both of you. I'm like, I'm just... I feel like I don't know either one of you. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, totally not relevant to the podcast. <laughs> Come on up to if, Seattle. If it's about us, it's relevant to the podcast. Uh, oh, well, no. I mean, it would be the kind of like... It's the, it's more like we should all basically just grab a beer kind of questions. <laughs> sure. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and we're, we're also, you know, we're here in San Francisco. Any listeners are here in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we love uh, hanging out. We're, you know, we're going to have, we're going to host office hours next week, too. So on the 23rd, awesome. there's yeah, like a yeah, meetup. Meet you can up, find you us know. on, find it on Twitter. There's there like a link pizza, on our Twitter. Yeah. Will there be pizza? There will be. There'll be something to drink and something to eat. That's for there sure. Go. There you go. Um, so, and yeah. Just in case you're listening to this much later, that's the 23rd of March, 2017. Yes. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks All for right. thanks for taking right, the time to drop yeah, by. Thanks, and, thanks uh, guys. This was cool. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks for having us. All right. It was a All blast. right. Take, take 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 care, guys. Thanks again for listening. Uh, just your usual logistics reminders. You can find us on the web at adversariallearning.com, on Twitter at adversarial underscore l. Uh, and if you want to send us some feedback or ask us questions or suggest guests or contribute your own theme musics, that's adversarial.learning.podcast at gmail.com. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We'll be back and do it again sometime soon. So see you soon. Mm -hmm.